uh, Tolkien is known for many things, but up until a few years ago, and this is sort of to my shame, I didn't know that this saying was his, not all who wander are lost. Did you know that was Tolkien? I did not for the longest time. It's from a poem out of the Lord of the Rings trilogy called All That Is Gold Does Not Glitter. And it's also a really popular bumper sticker back in in Colorado and places like Austin, Texas as well. Um, Side commentary aside, there you go. Uh, The idea is that you're being guided by some deeper purpose and some mystery that aren't readily apparent at first glance. And this idea plays really well when you think of being a sojourner or a spiritual pilgrim. You certainly could have applied this to Abraham's life, right? A deeper purpose at work, God and his promises drawing Abraham forward by faith, him not always able to see that or uh, glean that. Not all who wander are lost. Now this week it occurred to me that it might appear that as we're traveling around with Jesus and the 12 and Mark's gospels, that they're wandering a bit, journeying with only some vague sense of purpose. It might appear that Jesus isn't leading his disciples around in any particular direction, Wandering, teaching, healing, bringing the kingdom, not so. Jesus, the itinerant rabbi Messiah, is very much leading them. He's anything but lost. And Jesus leads them with great intention, not only spiritually, but geographically, which we'll see here in a moment. Uh, Remember last week I read you Mark 10. It says they were on their way up to Jerusalem, tells you where we're going, with Jesus leading the way. Not all who wander are lost. Now why Jerusalem? Well, I've shared with you a couple times the short answer Uh, Jerusalem is on the road to the cross. Jesus knows this. That's where he's leading them. That is true, but there's also a more obvious answer. Jesus is leading the 12 to Jerusalem for one of the great Jewish feasts. It's Passover. That's a high holy day for which you traveled to Jerusalem. You made a pilgrimage. It was one of those feasts that you made a pilgrimage to. Made a point to do that. So as we enter our gospel story today in Mark 10, 46 through 52, know that we're journeying to Passover with Jesus and the others. Okay, let's pick it up at uh, verse 46. Uh, Then they came to Jericho. Mark is letting us know that Jesus is en route. Jericho is on the way to Jerusalem. And the deeper meaning here, which people are not seeing yet, is that Jesus has set his sights on Jerusalem for a greater reason than just to celebrate Passover. Better said he will offer himself as the Passover lamb, the one perfect sacrifice, the Paschal lamb. Now, think with me here. In Israel's story, in the Old Testament, what is Jericho known for? It is the barrier, it is the final hurdle that separated the people of Israel from the promised land. Last stop, okay? That place that Moses saw from afar but didn't get to enter. Joshua was at the helm, and to conquer it, they needed to lean into God. They would not enter by their might. God makes that very clear. And he has them do some strange things, doesn't he? Walking around seven times, all these things. They were fearful, but God was going to bring them in. And as Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem, God is telling the same story that he was back in the Old Testament. He will make a way in where we cannot. Jericho leads to Jerusalem, which leads to the cross, which leads to our rescue. There's tremendous intention here. And while the enemies of Israel and Jericho were flesh and blood, Jesus will take on the world of flesh and the devil in one fell swoop. So, Jesus passing through that historic city of Jericho is a resounding Old Testament echo we cannot miss. The promised land lies on the other side, i.e., Jerusalem shall be the place of our deliverance where our bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil is broken by way of another unlikely mode of victory, by way of the cross. 
Uh, as Jesus and the disciples uh, pass through Jericho on their pilgrimage, we notice that they're traveling with a large crowd. You'll notice uh, the closer we get to Jerusalem, the crowds become more prominent in Mark's gospel. There are other pilgrims that have joined them. They're bound for Jerusalem too, for Passover. So, and you would do this. You would travel together uh, as family, as extended family, as groups of families. I mean, a group of this size would not be unusual to see traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. And all the more true if you have a charismatic rabbi taking the lead. So the thing you need to get here is there is a sense of momentum building, okay? An ever-enlargening, surging contingent of people around Jesus as they get closer to Jerusalem, the spiritual capital, the home of the temple. Okay, that's our, that's our setup, so to speak. Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, is sitting by the roadside and he is begging. Now, here's what we know of him even before he utters one word. One, let me point out the obvious here. He has a name. So not every character in the gospel stories are named. So pay attention when they are. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. In this case, he is. He has a name. He's probably, Mark probably details this because he's known in that region. He's the son of someone. He was known. It was a cultural designation of familial identity. Mark is also authenticating the story here. Details prove it, okay? If you're a resident of Jericho and around that time, you'd know Bartimaeus or you would know his family. We also see that he is blind. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, we don't know if he was born blind or his vision fell later. In some ways, that's inconsequential. The point is if you were disabled, if you were blind, if you were crippled, if you were deaf, you generally were not taught a trade. Your livelihood was contingent upon the compassion of others. So if your family or the religious order didn't care for you, you had to do what? You had to beg. There were no other options available. And the poorer you were, the more necessary uh, this was. So what you would do is you would situate yourself in certain strategic places, the entrance to the temple, by the city gates, where there's all this foot traffic. That makes sense. If you've got to subsist off this and survive off this, you've got to pick a smart place. And incidentally, when you see the blind and the lame and so on in the Gospels, there is a subtle indictment against the people of Israel here. These folks should be taken care of according to the Torah. They shouldn't have to beg. Okay, that's Bartimaeus. He has a name, and we see that he's blind, and we know a little bit about what that means. He hears that Jesus is coming along the path, and he can't see him, so he shouts out into the darkness in hopes of being seen and heard. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on here. The first of which, Jesus has a lot of different names from the gospel accounts that relate to his um, human origins. He's the prophet from Nazareth, okay, that's from Matthew 21. Jesus of Nazareth, we've heard that. The carpenter's son, Matthew 13. Joseph's son, Mary's son. Most of these obviously tell us about his human family, like Bartimaeus' name. They only speak to Jesus' earthly origins, his immediate family, and they're partly true of his identity. Bartimaeus calls Jesus something different. Son of David. Now, that should blow us out of the saddle a little bit because this, it's a messianic title. So from the get-go, he knows who Jesus is. <laughs> he knows who Jesus is. He has the eyes of faith here, as we shall soon see. Son of David, the Messiah, will come through the line of David. And Son of David is that messianic title. It's the first time this title is applied to Jesus. So in calling Jesus Son of David, we see the seeds of faith. So beautiful. And the blind man Bartimaeus recognizes who Jesus is even when the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those who have sight, do not. Is that ironic? Yes, it is. He cries out from the depths of his heart. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This blind man sees more than those who surround Jesus. Ironic, as I said before, absolutely. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Bartimaeus sees with the eyes of faith. Now the crowds rebuke him. <laughs> they tell him to be quiet, and which he, in response to that, he calls out all the more. The momentum of the crowds is always so strong in the Gospels. Oh my, the mob mentality evidently is, is a universal thing, a phenomenon. The crowds would rather steamroll Bartimaeus and keep moving. They're in route to Passover. They don't have time for this, right? Got to get to worship. So not unlike those who passed the injured man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They didn't do the will of God. They didn't stop and care for the man. And the disciples are often trying to mm, hustle Jesus along too, aren't they? But the ones who go against the grain are Jesus and those who desperately seek him. They go against the grain. How our Lord loves these folks who live so close to the bone, the poor, the sick, the outcast, the true seekers, desperate people who have no illusions about their station, about their situation. No need for putting on airs here, no pretense. I've talked about this ad nauseum the last few weeks. You know, a friend of mine penned a song in college. He had this line, ain't got no debts to pay, ain't got that far to fall. That's Bartimaeus. You know, it's kind of like freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, right? So Bartimaeus is undeterred. In fact, his resolve increases. He calls out all the more, the scriptures say, no shame, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, despite the barriers, the crowd, what's acceptable on a social level, he pursues Jesus. And according to the crowd's standards, he embarrasses himself. He becomes an outright nuisance. How about that? And in response, Jesus says, call him. He stops the procession. Now, dads, think with me here. Think road trip, okay? You have uh, made great efforts to load up the car, to load up the kids, load up all the gear for vacation. And what is your reaction when after about 15 minutes of driving, someone says what? I got to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. There's momentum there that you do not want to break. And yet, Jesus stops the procession, headed to Jerusalem, a crowd of pilgrims headed to worship, and that's a worthy endeavor, isn't it? He stops them, and he calls upon Bartimaeus, call him. Now, I love the crowd here, because this feels like a Monty Python skit straight out of the movies. Oh, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Don't you love how they changed their tune? Initially, it's shut up, you, be quiet. We've got to move on. Jesus says, call him. Oh, good for you, good luck. Cheer up. <laughs> On your feet, he's calling you. I, I just, I, if Monty Python didn't make a skit of this, they really should, because it's funny. Bartimaeus does this very thing. He throws his cloak aside, and he jumps up and comes to Jesus. Why the mention of the cloak? It really isn't a stray detail. The point is he drops his encumbrances. Perhaps it's all he has. Since he's a beggar, there's a good chance that he is poor, and that's what he has. That's it. How much does the rich young ruler have to drop to follow Jesus? A lot. And Bartimaeus, evidently just a cloak, which he does to meet Jesus. Now in Mark, disciples are always leaving something behind to follow Jesus. Always, when they respond to the call, they leave something, okay? Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they leave their nets. James and John leave their boat. Levi leaves his tax office. Bartimaeus leaves only a cloak, evidently because he's poor and because he has great resolve to meet Jesus. And it says he bounds to his feet in excitement. Don't have to ask me twice, Jesus, I'm up. So dropping his stuff, bounding to his feet, that's how Bartimaeus comes to meet Jesus. 
that is a tremendous picture of the kind of heart God loves to see. Love this. And Jesus, seeing into his heart before he speaks, <laughs> gives Bartimaeus the opportunity to speak from his heart. And he asks this question, which should sound vaguely familiar if you listened even just a little bit last week. What do you want me to do for you? That's familiar. We have heard this question before. Jesus is being very intentional here. Remember this question from last week's gospel reading. James and John, Jesus, do whatever you want. Do whatever we ask of you. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Same, same, same question. Their desire to sit in his right and his left when he comes into glory. How different it is in this case with Bartimaeus. Rabbi, I want to see. How different is Jesus' response when the question or the need is real and not just based in ambition or selfishness? Go big or go home, Bartimaeus. Well done. Such a contrast between him and James and John and the rich young ruler in the same chapter. And Mark wants us to see the contrast here. There's something fundamentally different about how Bartimaeus approaches the Lord. He's a testimony to us that we can behold and learn from. Mark 10 ends with this story for a reason. I, I really think this is true. We've seen some not so great examples of following Jesus, right? Rich young ruler, James and John jockeying for a pole position there. And, but we end strong with this story. Rabbi, I want to see. There is such a vibrant, childlike faith in people like Bartimaeus. And Jesus commends us to be like these little ones who are often poor in spirit, poor in money. They seem to follow more easily than we do. And Jesus beckons us to be like sheep. Listen to his voice. Follow it wherever it leads. So then you know uh, what happens. He heals him. He says, go your way. Your faith has healed you. He received his sight and he follows Jesus along the road. Now this is a key detail because not all who were healed followed Jesus. You'd like to think uh, that weren't the case. But miracles performed don't equal conversion and following in the Gospels. And following is a huge theme in Mark. It's what the 12 had been doing literally. Where Jesus goes, they go. doesn't mean your theology is as it should be. You know everything. Uh, but you stay on the path that Jesus is on. And you keep following as God shapes you more and more into his likeness. Now notice this. Bartimaeus starts the story alongside the road right? Kind of off the beaten path. But he ends the story as a follower. He follows Jesus by stepping onto the road, onto the path where Jesus is leading. And he moves to the heart of the story. He captures us. Now, I think there's another reason why we learn his name in this story. It's more than just a detail that authenticates the story. It is that. But it's because he joined the great procession that day, right? Heading for Jerusalem. He literally became a follower of Jesus, at this point in the gospel story. He's named here because he became a disciple that day. Hey, isn't that the son of Timaeus from Jericho? Isn't, isn't that disciple of Jesus? Wasn't he the one that used to be blind, but Jesus healed him? He is known by God. He is known to us. He is part of the communion of saints. He's one we will see when we cross over into glory. And in the next immediate scene in Mark 11, he'll enter into the holy city with Jesus and his followers to the triumphal entry. He's now part of the body. It's beautiful. We can learn a lot from Bartimaeus, a great deal about him and his faith. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs> I'm glad to say not so with Bartimaeus. 
Not so. His desires are strong for the Lord. His story occurs in the public eye. Think about that. That takes guts. That takes guts. I don't often want an audience for my life. Do you? Do you always want an audience for your life? I don't want to be a spectacle sometimes. But the idea is that our lives are a testimony of God's goodness, of his healing, of his restoration, of his rescue. And that just might be a spectacle to some. It's possible. God tells his story in and through us. You know this. And your life is a fiery Ebenezer of glory in a dark world, not to remain hidden. What's the song? Hide it under a bushel? What are you going to do? I'm going to let it shine, right? Wisdom from the mouths of babes. So Bartimaeus' faith is commendable to us. And there's, I think, at least three things we can glean from this passage, and, and here they are. There are probably more. I'm going to give you three. Three seems to be a nice round number. I count it as being a good Trinitarian, okay? Uh, one, he is raw and risky with God, and he beckons us to do likewise. Raw and risky. Will you go there with the Lord? Rather than praying small, safe prayers that keep your heart hidden away and that ensure you will not be disappointed, you know, you set the bar so low that you can't be disappointed. You ever done that with God? Will you be raw and risky with God? This is the heart we see in the Psalms, isn't it? Right? Bringing all of who we are to all of who God is. So one, raw and risky with God. He beckons us to that. Two, uh, Bartimaeus goes against the grain, to put it uh, mildly, in order to encounter Jesus. He goes against the crowd and he swims upstream. So, You'll have to do this in order to follow Jesus. There will be points where you will. You will go against the world at times, flat out. Now, we're tempted to go with the flow, aren't we? Right? Don't rock the boat. Don't upset the status quo. Just kind of go with it. Let's remain a faceless member of the crowd. That's easier than being a Bartimaeus in this story, isn't it? But he beckons us a bit to kind of go big or go home. Lay your heart and your need bare before the Lord no matter what others think or what they say. So will you go against the grain to follow Jesus? That's two, okay? Will you dare to stand out from the crowd? That's two. And this isn't self-aggrandizing. It's just there are moments that you stand up in faith and guess what? Your life becomes a testimony. Uh, three, poor beggar that he is, Bartimaeus drops his cloak, his encumbrances when he follows Jesus. And like, as I said before, every disciple leaves something behind in order to follow. So three is this. What layers do you need to shed? What things do you need to leave behind? And I find this question is just as relevant for those who follow Jesus and those who don't. It may be very fundamental in following Christ, but even for us, we can sort of amass baggage along the way, can't we? That at points God says, you're carrying too much. You can't follow me in this way with your hands so full of all this other stuff. So three is what things do you need to leave behind? Follow Jesus. May our Lord find our desires not too weak, but strong, like Bartimaeus. And may our faith be robust and unashamed, like Bartimaeus. May we not be too easily pleased, and may we pursue God with our whole hearts, unashamed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. amen.